you, worship team. <clears throat> it's good to have uh, Nick visiting, isn't it? <clears throat> it's good to be here. <laughs> I was just uh, struck by the line in that song, you're perfect in all your ways, and I was thinking about... <clears throat> how often I have this desire to be perfect and uh, how I never am (laughs) and uh, how thankful I am that we have a God who's perfect and uh, who makes us perfect through his power um, because of because of what his son has done he's able to look at us and and see us as perfect um, in spite of in spite of our shortcomings so I don't know I was just really struck by that in that moment don't know how well I just articulated that, but... Um, well, good afternoon, St. Paul's. Uh, we are about to enter into Chapter 3 in our series in Colossians. Uh, it's hard to believe we've only made it through two chapters. It feels like it's been a while. Um, but uh, we're about to get into some, some exciting stuff here in Chapter 3. Because um, Chapter 3, there's a bit of a shift that takes place. Um, up until this point, uh, Paul's primarily been talking about the gospel message. Um, and he's, he's reminded the Colossians of some core truths. Things like how Jesus is the highest conceivable authority, um, how in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, and how through him we have power to overcome sin. And then he's also pointed out some bad trends that he's seen going on in the Colossian church that have kind of made them drift away from this core message. So, things like uh, legalism and asceticism and the pursuit of secret knowledge. But now in chapter 3, we get this shift where uh, Paul starts telling the Colossians how they should live. Uh, he gives a couple lists of behaviors and qualities for what they should not do um, and a list of some behaviors and qualities that, that should characterize what they do do. Uh, and the fancy way of saying this is that he provides a list of exhortations. The not-so-fancy way of saying this is that he provides a list of do's and don'ts. And what we're going to do today is to take a look at the first half of that list of exhortations, which are the don'ts. The don'ts actually come first. Now, I've heard it said before, you've probably heard this, that Christianity is not about a list of do's and don'ts. And I'd like to respond to that a little bit right now. It is definitely true that our faith is so much more than a list of do's and don'ts, than a list of rules. But we have to acknowledge that do's and don'ts are a part of our faith. Uh, There's a lot of places in Scripture where God has things to say about how we live our lives. Things that he wants us to do and things that he doesn't want us to do. And even, even though our faith is so much more than rules, it is a relationship with the living God. That relationship, part of that relationship, are these rules for life that God has for us. Uh, If we have a meaningful relationship with the all-knowing, all-loving God of the universe, we should care about how he wants us to live our lives. That said, though, when we talk about lists of do's and don'ts in the Bible, we have to avoid a trap, which is that we have to remember that these lists are not instructions on how we can save ourselves. That's so important. 
Because the gospel message that Paul has been trying so hard to preserve in the, in the Colossian church is not the message that they can save, ourselves, save themselves by following a bunch of rules, right? That's what the whole chapters 1 and 2 has all been about. Uh, the message he's been trying to preserve is that Jesus has saved us on account of what he has done. So even though we are supposed to follow do's and don'ts, we're not supposed to follow them because we're trying to save ourselves. We're supposed to follow do's and don'ts because Jesus has saved us. When we follow do's and don'ts to try and save ourselves, we are, as the old saying goes, putting the cart before the horse. Now, if you have trouble believing this, I don't blame you. It's counterintuitive. But if you're having trouble, let's look at the first four verses of our passage. So this is chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So these four verses are like a preface to the exhortations that Paul's about to give us. And notice the way he starts. He says, Since you have been raised with Christ, So he assumes, right from the start, that these people that he's talking to, that they belong to Jesus. Now, I realize some of the language he uses here is a little confusing. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't remember being raised with Christ. I don't remember dying. What's this all about? Well, there's this idea that pops up throughout the New Testament, this theme. And it's this idea that says that when we put our faith in Christ, we're in some sense united to him. So, uh, his life becomes our life, his sinlessness becomes our sinlessness, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, since you're united with Christ, since you belong to him, since you're going to share in the benefits of his resurrection, you're going to be raised too. Because of all that, you should do the stuff that I'm about to tell you. But notice, he doesn't say, if you want to be raised with Christ, you should do all the stuff I'm about to tell you. Now, since you have been raised with Christ. Because for Paul, the horse that drives the cart is the simple message that Jesus Christ is the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And through him, we can be saved. A holy life is the cart that follows that horse. So, St. Paul's Church, I want to say, like Paul, since you have been raised with Christ, here's how you should live. And now we're going to take a look at what our passage has to say about that. But before we do, let's say a quick prayer before we get into this. So. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, uh, even though um, we're putting our trust in you, even though we have our faith in you, we're still human. And that means that a lot of the time we don't like to be told what to do. And... Uh, So, God, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would give us hearts that are receptive to what you're saying. I pray that you would help us to trust that you are a a good, good father, like we sang, and that you are perfect in all your ways, and you know uh, what's best for us. And so we can trust you, even when it's hard to do what you're telling us. Um, We can trust that your will, your desire for us is good. Um, And so I pray that as we look at uh, these exhortations, God, that uh, we would be inspired to follow you wholeheartedly, 
and uh, that you would give us a, a willingness uh, to pursue your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So the first thing I'd like us to notice here is the really strong language that Paul uses. He says, put this stuff to death. Kill it. If you look up the Greek verb here that's used uh, in a concordance, it says to kill or to slay. And I like that word slay because it makes me envision uh, these sins as vicious dragons that we need to put a sword through. I bet you like that picture, Steve Oldham. Um, And I think this metaphor is valuable because it captures how serious these sins are. You can't let a vicious dragon hang around. You have to either slay it or be eaten by it. But I think when it comes to our sin dragons, we usually want to find a middle ground between slaying and being eaten. We kind of want to tame them. Uh, We want to subdue them a little bit. Maybe we want to put them in a cage and then occasionally take them out, play with them as pets. Uh, But vicious dragons can't be tamed. And so Paul says, kill them. Put them to death. Don't play games with them. These dragons need to be slayed. So, what are these dragons? Well, the first one that Paul brings up is sexual immorality. So I'm so glad we get to start with an easy one. I'm going to need a drink of water. (laughs) All right. First, I want to acknowledge that when it comes to this topic, this whole question of what is God's perspective on sex and relationships, what's moral, what's not, and why, is something that really deserves an entire sermon series. Um, It's... I'm not just going to be able to take care of it in a few minutes this afternoon. Uh, So what I'm going to say, I'm just going to apologize in advance because it's going to be inadequate. It's not going to be enough. Um, But I feel like I have to say a few things about this dragon of sexual immorality. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that how we handle our sexuality is very important to God. It matters something he cares about a lot. Like it says in verse 6, sexual immorality is one of the reasons the wrath of God is coming. So, and it's the subject of the first exhortation here, right? So that shows that how we handle our sexuality is supposed to be one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Uh, For followers of Jesus, our sexual behavior isn't a minor issue. It matters. 
Now, that raises the question, uh, well, what counts as sexual immorality? Because some people will try to argue, maybe you've heard this, that what's moral and what's not when it comes to sex is culturally determined. Uh, And they'll say, well, it isn't really considered sexually immoral in our culture today to have sex outside of marriage. It's pretty normative. Um, So as long as it's consensual and you're not cheating on anyone, it must be okay. Uh, So these people might say, well, Paul's just condemning, condemning sexual immorality um, and what's moral in our society is, is uh, different than what it might have been in the past. But that interpretation really doesn't work. Uh, because when Paul was writing this letter, he was writing it during the height of the Roman Empire. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Roman Empire, but let's just say it was not a very prudish time or place in history. Uh, In fact, from what I understand, in those days, it was expected that men would have sex outside of marriage, even while married. Uh, Prostitution was very legal, very commonplace, very public. So when Paul says, put to death sexual immorality, he's not saying, follow the norms of your culture. Do what they say is okay. You know, he's saying, go against the norms of the culture. Swim upstream. And when we look at the early church, we can see that they understood this. There's a a really interesting letter from the second century, and I'm probably going to pronounce these names incorrectly, but from a guy named uh, Mithetes to Diognetes. Um, And uh, this is from probably around 130 AD. And uh, Mithetes was writing to this guy about this weird group of people called Christians. And he's describing how strange they are. And he has this one line in there that's very interesting. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. So, in other words, he was struck by the fact that these people were really hospitable. They shared everything. They had a common table. But when it came to sexual behavior, they were strangely monogamous. So, you might say they were promiscuous with their hospitality, but they were monogamous in their sexuality. And both of those qualities set them apart from their non-Christian neighbors. And so the early church understood that being sexually moral didn't just mean conforming to the norms of the culture. They understood that it meant going against the culture by limiting sexual activity only to a relationship between a husband and wife. And they understood that what Paul meant when he said put sexual immorality to death was put to death sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship. And as countercultural as that was, they understood that that was what they were being called to do. And that was what Paul was teaching in this letter. Now, I realize that in our culture today, as it was back in the first century, this is a hard teaching. Remember when uh, Jesus talks about how you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then everyone goes, oh, this is a hard teaching. I don't know if we can handle this. This is the hard teaching in our culture today. And it's especially hard because we we live in a culture that is just constantly trying to make us think differently about sex than God does. Um, You might remember that about a month ago we looked at Colossians 2, verse 8, where Paul talks about the basic principles of this world. And he says that there are basic principles of this world that are opposed to Christ 
and that lead us to become captive to hollow and deceptive philosophies. And we talked about how some of those principles include things like consumerism and legalism and retaliation. Well, I think another basic principle of this world that we can add to this list in 2016 has to do with sex. And uh, what, what the basic principle of this world is, is uh, sexual behavior is acceptable just as long as it's consensual. Uh, that's one of the basic principles in 2016. But like the principles of retaliation and consumerism and legalism, it's just not true. God's perspective is different from the basic principles of this world. Now, if you're used to the basic principles of this world, as many of us are, you might be thinking right now, okay, well, why is God so restrictive about sex? Why is sex such a big deal? And if you're wondering that, again, that's a huge question. We need a sermon series. I can't just do it in a few minutes. We've got other dragons to talk about in addition to this one. But I'll say this, just to get you thinking. If that's your question, why is sex... Why is sex such a big deal? Why is God restrictive? I would, I would counter with another question, which is, do you think people are a big deal? And uh, I imagine you probably do. I would agree. And I believe God agrees. God loves people deeply. But if people are a big deal, then we need to think of sex as a big deal, too. Because, and hopefully someone explained it this to you, Uh, by this point, but sex is the mechanism by which new people come into the world. It's the mechanism that God designed to create more people. I mean, have you ever really, you know, just thought about that, just kind of reflected on that for a moment, that God set things up so that through the sexual act, people, souls who are precious to him, come into being. Souls that go on to grow up and make decisions that then influence eternity. You know, when you think about it in that way, how can we not see sex as a big deal? And, I mean, even if you're using birth control, you take every uh, precaution to make sure that this act is not going to lead to the creation of new people, even if you're doing that, that doesn't change the fact that this is still the act that God designed in order to do that. So that alone should give us a clue that this is not something to be taken lightly. And it makes sense, given the power of this act, that the God who loves us would also put restrictions on it. Not because he's no fun, but because he cares about people. And he cares about us. So, finally, one last thing I want to say about this dragon before moving on is, I understand that this is a touchy subject, no pun intended, um, because it has a tendency to stir up feelings of shame. And shame is not a fun, fun emotion. Nobody likes to feel shame. And when we feel shame, we have two typical responses, neither of which is good. The first one is to just let the shame in and kind of dwell in self-hatred and regret and just feel terrible. And then the second response to shame is to kind of dig our feet into the ground and say, I don't have any reason to be ashamed. I've never done anything wrong. The Bible doesn't really say that. The problem with both of those responses is is that they don't move us forward. Um, 
God wants to bring us life. God wants to bring us healing. God wants to bring us forgiveness. That's the gospel. Um, so if you're feeling shame, it doesn't, it's not God's will for you either to dwell in it or to deny it. His will for you is to confess it. You know, it's to come to him, confess it, and receive forgiveness. First uh, John 4, 9, or sorry, 1, 9, a uh, great verse that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I just want to say, if this subject stirs up shame for you, I want to encourage you not to dwell, not to deny, but to confess. To confess. Because when we confess, we can receive that forgiveness, and we can be cleansed. So, okay. Again, that's insufficient, but for today, that's where we're going to have to leave it. And hopefully someday we can, we can uh, tackle this whole issue more thoroughly. So that's one dragon down, only nine more to go. Uh, Actually, we're going to move pretty quickly through the next four because they're all closely related to each other. Uh, Paul tells us that we need to put to death impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Now, the fact that all these sins are listed right after sexual immorality can lead us to think that they're all about sex. Uh, After all, these words purity, lust, desire... They're all words that tend to come up when we're talking about sexual sin. But it would be a mistake to think that Paul's only talking about sex here. Uh, When you look up the Greek word that's translated as impurity here, it's defined as luxurious, extravagant living. So, nothing specific about sex there. It actually seems more related to the last sin in that list, greed, than it does to the first one. What Paul's saying is that we need to put to death the impulse that we have to live this, like, a lavish, uh, wasteful lifestyle. Uh, the impulse that says that we need to have more money and, and uh, more toys than our neighbors, uh, and that life is all about acquiring stuff. And then the next dragon, lust, is closely related to this. Uh, lust just refers to any passion that we might have, any longing for something that we're not supposed to have. So, lust can be a longing that we might have for an inappropriate sexual relationship. That's the most common way that it gets used. Uh, But it can also refer to the longing that we have for power or uh, excessive food or lots of money. It's just a desire for something that God doesn't intend for us. And, of course, that's also basically the definition of evil desires. Lust and evil desires, essentially the same thing. And, And then that last one, greed which is just that insatiable desire for more, uh, that's an outgrowth, uh, an outgrowth of lust and evil desires. So these dragons are all the same dragon family. They're all, they're all related to each other. And I had a thought when I was looking at this list of these five things, and take it for what it's worth, but I was... Hello? <laughs> I was struck by the fact that um, you know, usually, and this is an overgeneralization, so don't come out of here saying, oh, Ryan says this about the left and the right politically. But in general, I've noticed that people who are more on the left side of the spectrum, politically and theolo- theologically, they have a reputation for not really caring that much about traditional sexual ethics, but they do have a reputation for caring a lot about the poor and about uh, greedy economic policies, Right? And then people on the right side of the spectrum, 
theologically and politically, generally have more of a reputation for caring about traditional sexual ethics, um, but maybe not caring as much about the poor and about greedy practices and economics and that sort of thing. And what struck me is that when you look at this list right here, it's like Paul saying, you don't have to choose. <laughs> like, both really matter. You know, we should care about greed, and we should care about sexual immorality, and we shouldn't try and, like, pit them against each other, like, oh, we, we should care more about one than the other. No, we're called to put both to death in our own lives. We're called to put sexual immorality to death and greed. So we should care about both. There's this weird dichotomy that sometimes happens that, that doesn't need to happen. Okay, so moving on, after telling us about these, these dragons that we need to put to death, Paul says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And I think we need to talk about the wrath of God a little bit. You don't hear very many sermons on the wrath of God. Um, I wouldn't say that the wrath of God is my favorite topic myself. I, I generally like to talk about the love of God. Um, but I think we have to talk about the wrath of, of God. And one of the reasons I think we need to talk about it is because it is often misunderstood. Because I would say we tend to think of the wrath of God as the moment when God's love ends. Would you say that's true? The moment when God's love ends? We think of God as being loving and patient and kind, but then we see him as sort of reaching a breaking point, and then he just explodes in a rage, starts throwing dishes around the kitchen. Um, and we think of that as the moment of wrath. But that's a very human understanding of wrath. Because God's wrath isn't an uncontrolled rage. Uh, God's wrath, I'm going to say this, I, I tried to put this in, in the best way I could, and I, I think I, I really like the way this, this came out. Okay, God's wrath is the expression of his fierce opposition to whatever threatens peace in his creation. God's wrath is his fierce opposition to whatever threatens the peace of his creation. So there's something like human anger in God's wrath, for sure. Um, but for God, that anger is not the point when his love runs out. It's actually an aspect of his love. You cannot have the love of God without the wrath of God. It doesn't make any sense. Because if God is really loving, God has to hate whatever threatens what he loves. Uh, for example, if you love someone dearly and they're a heroin addict, you're going to feel some wrath towards heroin and towards those who make a profit off of it and distribute it. And that wrath is not the opposite of love. You know, it's part of your love. Your love for the addict leads you to hate what's destroying her life. And God is like that too. The wrath of God is coming because God hates the things that destroy his people and destroy his creation. Things like sexual immorality, lust, greed. Those things are destructive forces. They bring pain and disorder and chaos. And because of that, God hates them. And one day, the wrath of God is going to come just like Paul says, because eventually God is going to eliminate these destructive forces. Now, the question is, when God comes to eliminate the destructive forces, is he going to have to destroy you too? 
And the answer is that for those of us who have faith in Christ, we can be confident that the answer is no. You won't have to do that. But even if he did, it would not be an act that's devoid of love because God's wrath is related to his love. He isn't wrathful because he ceases to love. He's wrathful because he loves. Okay, so moving forward. Verse 8, Paul gives the second list of don'ts. He says, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now I want us to notice something really interesting. I was excited about this when I discovered this. The first item in that list is anger. And the Greek word for anger there is orge. And uh, that same exact word has actually already been used in our passage. It was used just a little earlier in verse 6. It's the same word that was used for wrath. So we're told that the wrath of God is coming, but at the same time we're told that we need to rid ourselves of wrath. Isn't that interesting? Uh, And what that suggests is that the expression of wrath is a privilege that God has and we don't. So wrath isn't something we human beings are meant to exercise. God wants us to leave that expression of wrath up to him. So you know how sometimes we think the idea of God's wrath is really disturbing. Well, there's one of the reasons it's really disturbing is because we aren't supposed to be that way. Um, remember how I said when we think of wrath, we think of explosive anger. And usually explosive anger brings more chaos than order. Right? But God's wrath, unlike our wrath, is always per- perfectly expressed. And it doesn't bring more chaos than order. It's actually a force that brings order because it destroys the forces of chaos. So we need to leave leave that privilege of wrath up to God. Next, we're told to put off rage and malice. Both of these really similar to wrath, right? Uh, Malice is a bit more specific. It's the desire to actually hurt or injure others. So if someone gives you the finger when you're driving and you just have that desire to run them off the road, that feeling is malice. And Paul tells us that that desire isn't something that we're permitted to have. Um, Because we should never long for people to be hurt, either physically or emotionally. Uh, Instead, we should long for people to be changed and redeemed. There's a a big difference there. But malice isn't an option for us. Next, we're told, put off slander. Uh, The Greek word here is actually blasphemia, or blasphemia, which is the word that we get blasphemy from. Now, we usually think of blasphemy as when you use God's name as a profanity, right? And that's definitely something that we shouldn't do. But blasphemy is actually much more than that. What blasphemy is, as this translation tells us, is slander. It's ruining someone's reputation. So using God's name as a curse word does kind of hurt his reputation, right? Because we're supposed to give him respect, and when we just use it as a curse word, we're not giving him respect. But the truth is, it's way more blasphemous um, when an abusive pastor misrepresents God or when an evangelist lies. Because in both of those cases, the reputation of God is being slandered. And Paul's reminding us that we should not do that. But, of course, he's not just talking about slandering God. He's also talking about slandering our neighbors. And, you know, it it hits me 
that it is just so easy to hurt someone's reputation. Now, all it takes is like a couple seconds. And uh, I think back to like middle school when like somebody would just say something casually about somebody else. And so and so has a rash, you know? And then it was like nobody would talk to him for the next two years. Um, <laughs> once you say something slanderous, it's so hard to take it back. You can't really take it back. And so we need to be really, really careful because as followers of Christ, we're, we're called to be the sort of people who build up other people's reputations, uh, not tear them down. And that doesn't mean you need to say great things. Uh, say there's somebody in your community who's genu- genuinely dangerous. And, you, know, you don't want to say, oh, that's a good person to have babysit your kids. You know? um, but but you, should not, you should avoid saying anything that is going to falsely uh, bring down somebody's reputation, or maybe even correctly bring down somebody's reputation if it's not necessary. Um, we should avoid slander. Next, we're told to rid ourselves of filthy language. If you were here last week, you remember I referenced Ralphie from A Christmas Story. I couldn't help but want to do it again. When this came up, this is when Ralphie gets punished for saying a bad word. Got to put the soap in his mouth. Um, Typically, when we think of filthy language, we think of those handful of words that the Federal Communications Commission won't let us say on television or radio during certain hours, the swear words. Uh, And I would say that in a lot of cases, uh, that kind of language is is probably included in what Paul's talking about here. When you think about it, it is a really weird habit that humanity has picked up to randomly punctuate our sentences with references to sex and bodily functions. Like, have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Why, why do we do that? Um, and I can't help but wonder, especially if the use of the F word is another example of the basic principles of this world at work. Because, um, like we talked about earlier, those principles are always trying to get us to view sex differently than God does, Right? And so, by encouraging society to use the F word frivolously, it's like a kind of a, a program to get us to not use sex the right way, or to cheapen it. Um, you know, it's similar to when we use God's name, just frivolous, frivolously. We're not giving it the respect or honor it deserves. When you drop the F word, you're doing the same thing, but to the sexual act. Um, but, that said... I don't think that's the only kind of filthy language that Paul's talking about here. Right before this, he talked about slander, right? And right after it, he talks about lying. And that suggests that filthy language is not just limited to a handful of bad words. Um, It's a very uh, childish understanding of bad language. It includes any language that's used to demean or destroy. And... uh, An an adult understanding of what bad language is recognizes that the worst language can be totally clean by the Federal uh, Communication Commission standards. Um, So when it it comes to our language, God calls us to a higher standard than that. Finally, uh, Paul concludes his list of don'ts with a reminder. He says that since we have become new selves in Christ, um, there is no longer Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now this right here is more of a statement of fact 
then uh, don't do this. Uh, but there is a don't that's implied in there. Paul's saying that for those who follow Christ, there's no longer any place anymore for racism or tribalism. None. Now, racism is a particularly nasty dragon. Uh, throughout history, there have been people, noble people, who have tried to kill it, uh, but it is really stubborn and it's still alive and well today. And I think that racism is a really significant topic that we as a church, uh, both at, in, within St. Paul's and the church at, at large in the world, uh, needs to be talking about regularly. But for now, all I'll say is this. If any of us have something against a particular race, we have something against Christ. Because Christ's body includes people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Um, if we want to enjoy heaven, we better learn not to be racist now, because that race that we haven't learned to love, they're going to be there forever. So <laughs> we might as, learn how to love, might as well learn how to love and appreciate them now. Okay, so I know we tried to take in a lot this afternoon. Here's the uh, complete list of all the dragons that were called to slay in this passage. It's a little overwhelming. Uh, a little overwhelming to re- be reminded of the high standards that God calls us to. But I don't want any of us to leave today feeling discouraged. Remember, don't put the cart before the horse. We do these things since we have been raised with Christ, not in order to be raised with Christ. So God's grace goes before us, goes with us, and after us. If doing all this depended on ourselves, without the grace and forgiveness of God, we would be doomed. We'd never be able to do it. Uh, But with his help and grace along the way, we can make a lot of progress in slaying these dragons. So in a minute, I'm going to pray. And after that, I'm going to leave this slide up here. Uh, as the worship team comes up to lead us in reflection. And I'm just going to ask you to take the time to just look at that list and just reflect if there's anything you need to confess before the Lord. Um, Take some time to do that. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much that our salvation is not dependent on our ability to live perfectly. Uh, but we also thank you that you love us enough to, um, to give us instructions on how to live our lives. And we trust, God, that, that you know what you're talking about when you give those instructions. And that your instructions are motivated by love and concern and um, fatherly affection for us. And uh, God, right now we, we want to acknowledge that um, we haven't always slayed these dragons. We have tried to tame them and Sometimes they've eaten us. Um, So God, we just uh, ask right now that you would call to mind anything that we might need to to bring before you and confess. And We give you thanks, Lord, for for your grace, God. And we even thank you for your wrath, too, uh, that will one day put put an end uh, to all the evil that that, uh, brings chaos and disorder into your, your world. So we ask, God, that you would, you would lead us as we reflect. We give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.